that you all never looked better. <laughs> Except for the people here in their pajamas. Um, it is a thrill to be here, just because I can picture you all in my minds, and I have a few victims here in front of me that I can rant at. But um, we're just, you know, I, I want to encourage you all to continue. Uh, we have a chance here to be heroes. And as we protect one another by using wisdom, um, each one of you is a hero for, for standing up and, and helping you know, defeat this enemy that we cannot see. So God bless you, and we pray that you are uh, ministered to. Let's quickly pray. Almighty God, uh, may the words that I speak be the words that you want spoken. Let anything that I add be quickly forgotten, and everything of yours be as pure gold and rich, uh, precious jewels in the hearing of everyone who's uh, participating in this this morning and in recorded uh, messages that might be heard later. We thank you, God, for being with us and for um, your spirit or making us alive to your word and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <coughs> well, I want to start out with a an event that happened to me recently, I, I wasn't expecting it, and it, I had actually already started thinking about this message, and I saw a documentary on TV about a Buddhist monk. This monk had been a monk since he was very young, and now he was quite old, and the documentary was talking about his life and the, what he had done, and they made a point as he went to prayer one at one point in time, they followed him to the spot where he would always go and pray at the shrine or the temple that he was um, serving in. And they p panned the camera down to his feet. And as the monk finished his prayers and walked away, there remaining in the wood of the floor where he had stood day after day, many times a day, praying, for hours was the perfect imprint of his feet, worn down into the wood. Five toes, the arch, the heel, a little bit deeper, an amazingly accurate and complete imprint down into the wood of that monk's feet. And being kind of the cynical person I can be, my first thought when I saw that was, wow. If that monk ever looks down, sees those footprints and says, because I'm so disciplined and have renounced self so thoroughly, I've done this. And wouldn't that make it all worth nothing? Isn't it true that a little bit of pride contaminates and ruins an act that otherwise appears noble and righteous to outsiders or observers. I think realizing that fact or coming to grips with that in my youth was really what drove me to consider the claims of the gospel. If I were to tell you my personal conversion story, it would start something like this. I was lost in self-confidence and morality. Because you see, I, th I thought I had everything under control. I didn't feel any need for any help. 
I was a good student. I was a good kid, a good son. I stayed out of trouble. And then somehow, as I got older, I suppose I started thinking about eternity and whether God was real or not. And I realized two facts. Number one, people didn't know everything about me. Number two, even on my best days, even when I was doing the things that my family or my teachers could look at and say, what a great job, what a good kid. Even then, the thing I was doing was always tainted with a selfish motive and pride. And no matter how it got dressed up, it wasn't the perfect spotless offering that a holy God could accept. I recognized that I was incapable of earning God's favor. And like Isaac, if you picture when he was led to the top of Mount uh, Moriah by, with Abraham, his father, he looked around up there and said, Father, I see the wood and I see the fire, but I imagine kind of sheepishly he asked, where is the lamb? And like Isaac, I came to realize that uh, if God didn't come through and provide some better sacrifice, some better offering than I could, then I was toast. Today I want to look at Job in this book, that, in this opening passages that we've just read, and look at this idea of pride as it plays out in a fascinating book, a fascinating character. And I have two purposes for, for choosing this book. Number one, it's a story that shows how we can be honest with God. We see both in the actions of Job that he is willing to be right up front and open with God about how he feels. And as we look at those actions and think about it, we can also be honest and contemplate the issues that this book kind of brings to life. My second purpose is that I really think this is a great book for stirring up in you an interest in reading your Bible, for getting excited about these beautiful Old Testament stories and messages which you may not know as well as your New Testament stories about Jesus that, that are you know, more familiar to us, but they're great, and they say so much, and I really want you to, to get that out of this message. I believe that as we take a look at Job and this book, you will be able to identify with Job in one of several ways. I'm going to look at these three important themes in the story. So you listen for them. I know this is a little bit hard to read if you have a really crisp and clear high-res phone, you might be able to read them. I will s read all of the verses I share and, and this screen as well. We're going to see themes of Job's suffering, Job's religious pride, and Job's transformation. But first, I have to give you some background. We read that Job is described as blameless and upright a man who fears God and shuns evil. And these words were spoken by God himself. 
We know that Job regularly offers sacrifices on behalf of his children. So we know that he is steeped in the religious practices of the Hebrew culture. Job was a good Hebrew. He had an understanding of the law, and he was living according to it. And later times, the formalized Mosaic law, will you'll see how we, in Hebrew culture and just in the first reading of a lot of scripture, uh, we see this assumption played out that God rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. If you read the book of Proverbs, you see a lot of these black and white comparison statements. In Proverbs 2.7, we read, he holds success in store for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in, whose walk is blameless, for he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. And in Proverbs 2.21, he says, for the upright will live in the land and the blameless will remain in it, but the wicked will be cut off from the land and the unfaithful will be torn from it. So that's a pattern that you see throughout the book of Proverbs. I hope you don't all hear the squeaky floor. <laughs> we, we moved the pulpit a little bit and entered a trap. But anyway, um, that's what you see throughout the book of Proverbs, these back-to-back -back illustrations that, that show the difference between the godly and the wicked, the wise and the foolish. But if you're um, not careful, you'll see that we in the modern age, as well as these ancient readers, tend to cling to this desire to live by black and white rules. And we misapply these instructional illustrations. And we determine that God obviously blesses the wise and upright, which would be us, and punishes the foolish and wicked, which is obviously the other guy. Now, I don't want to imply that Proverbs should not be read and digested and, and enjoyed. We know that it is scripture. And as we read in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And Proverbs, in its own words, in Proverbs 16.20, says, Whoever gives heed to instruction prospers, and blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. And Proverbs is a book of instructions. So I encourage you certainly to read it and take away the many truths that are in there. But what I want to point out is there's a whole category of Scripture, a whole set of books in the Bible that are called wisdom literature. And the book of Job belongs to this group. They contain the thoughts, and because they're scripture, we know that they are inspired thoughts from God, from the Holy Spirit, of men who looked around at the world, and women, Ruth and Esther, belong in that category, who looked around and saw the rich and the poor. They saw godly people and wicked people, and they realized 
God's ways are not as simple as we would, might like them to be. The writer of Ecclesiastes even writes, In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Wisdom literature attempts to confront this paradox. The story of Job is an attempt to understand how this man, who is presented as upright and blameless, could suffer so horribly. We only read the good part of the book. We read the introduction, which sounds like a great start. We would all like to be Job at that point in the story. If you know what happens next, uh, you know there's a problem. Excuse me. Let me quickly uh, summarize the whole book of Job. We read that Job not only was upright and blameless, but was the greatest man in the East. He's the equivalent of today's billionaire. He had more of the currency of that age than anyone else. We saw about the thousands of camels and sheep and donkeys and cattle and land and crops. And he had the perfect family, seven sons and three daughters. Everything was great until one day God started asking questions. You always got to watch out when God asks questions. He does not ask questions to get information. Remember, if you will, in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve had eaten the forbidden fruit and were hiding because of their guilt, and God comes into the garden and calls out, Adam, where are you? Or after Cain had killed his brother Abel, God came and said, Cain, where is your brother Abel? God wasn't looking for information. He was pointing out to Adam, to Eve, to Cain. He was trying to prick their conscience and make them intensely aware of their sin. So be careful when God starts asking questions. In the book of Job, we see God asking questions that shows that he is able to employ the devil himself, who is called the accuser throughout the book of Job, to do his will. In fact, God the Father initiates the conversation. And then he asks, have you considered my servant Job? And I have to ask the question when I read that. Why? Why would God present this blameless man to Satan to be tested? Is it because God is proud and needs to show off this trophy saint? Or is it because God is insecure and needs to prove that there's someone who worships him? What possible motive would God have in this. I'm going to give you my answer at the end of the message. But one thing is clear at the outset. This whole event, all that we read about 
coming up in the rest of the book of Job is conducted under God's rules and accomplishes his objectives. So God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And the accuser answers, of course he worships you. You've given him everything. And you protect him from harm. Take all that away and he'll curse you. So God gives Satan permission, permission to touch all that he has but not his body. And the story unfolds to describe how in a single day Job loses everything. Raiding pirates come and steal half of his livestock and slaughter many of his slaves. Uh, rogue armies come and attack and take the rest of them. And in one natural catastrophe, all of his children are killed. I, I'm obviously abbreviating a lot. I encourage you to read it. It's an amazing story. But in one day, Job loses everything. And he famously responds like this. Naked I came into the world and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. How stoic. How doctrinally correct. Job is clinging tenaciously to what he's been taught. And we find out on another day Sometime later, again, God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him. And Satan responds, and this is a great phrase, skin for skin. A person will give all he has for his own life. So God says, very well. He is in your hands, but you must spare his life. And the story goes on to tell how Job is afflicted from the top of his head to the soles of his feet with sores and boils. And his only relief is to sit among ashes and scrape those boils and sores with a piece of broken pottery. Job's suffering is certainly intense. We tend to focus on the physical suffering, the painful sores and agony and seeking in vain for some kind of relief. But what about the other losses, the loss of his family, the children who he obviously loved and made sacrifices and, and served as a priest for year after year? The losses his other losses seem trivial by comparison, but you and I would be in panic over the loss of all our possessions, our wealth, our savings, our security, our plans for tomorrow, to lose it all in a single day. Physical suffering, the loss of family, financial suffering, and then Job's friends come along and we have to give them credit for showing up at all. 
and for sitting quietly for a week just in support. But then as the discussions start, they seem only interested in convincing Job that he must have offended God and he must be receiving his due punishment. Now I'll move a little faster. You've got the gist of the story. Throughout the rest of the book, we have these many long speeches from Job's friends and then Job himself, and they all reflect their, that they are stuck in this legalistic, simplistic view of God's relationship with mankind. That is to say that God blesses the righteous and punishes the sinner. Therefore, Job, you must have done something wrong. And Job's consistent reply is, I've done nothing wrong. God is treating me unfairly. And they're both wrong because they both fail to make any allowance for God's sovereignty and his grace. God's sovereignty means that he is God and God does what God wants to do. But his grace is that God does good to who he chooses to do good to. Probably the most famous well-known passage from Job is in chapter 19. And this is clearly a reflection of orthodox Hebrew teaching at the time on the Messiah and a future physical resurrection. From where we stand today, in a, the New Testament era, we often read this and see it as a great statement of, of faith in, in, the, in, the, in a Savior, which it is, prophetically. Job may not have known exactly what he was saying, but it's a beautiful prophetic message. In fact, songs have been written using these words. But the first two verses we read will make it clear that Job is not just proclaiming God's mercy and grace. Job is looking for a good lawyer. He wants someone who could help him win his case. Here's Job 19, 23 through 27. Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. That's good doctrine. Job is holding fast what he's been taught. And over the next nine chapters in the book of Job, we see Job's counselors continue to accuse him of hidden sin and Job defending his righteousness under the law. And then God shows up and begins to ask questions. The conversation does not appear to include Job's friends. This is just between God and Job. 
God says, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. And for the next four chapters, God asks Job 83 questions about the beauty and design of creation, about the amazing characteristics of the animals he created, about the sun, the moon, the stars, and the significant thing about all these questions is that Job cannot answer a single one. God is driving home a point to Job that he must let God be God, the sovereign and omnipotent creator who answers to no one. After this drilling, these four chapters of 85 questions to help Job recognize where he stands in God's economy, Job finally responds. And you hear in this response a certain change in tone. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This final statement of Job's is very different from what we'd heard throughout the book. Something has changed. The story concludes. Um, it wraps up and we learn that God now instructs Job to pray for his friends, once again recognizing and restoring Job's priestly role. All of Job's possessions are restored double, and he even comes to have a new family. But that doesn't mean that Job ends up at the same place where he started. I see in this story a pre-suffering Job and a post-suffering Job. I see a Job in the beginning who believed the simple popular doctrine of his day, who believed that his success was due to his ability to satisfy God's requirements. The words used by God himself to describe Job as upright and a man who shunned evil and blameless are not intended to describe sinless perfection. Job understood that, and the law provided for sacrifices to deal with our minor imperfections. And Job was familiar with those religious practices, and he was diligent to perform them on schedule, and he trusted in his ability to please God and he was trusting in his ability to keep the rules and to earn God's favor. Job was able to defend himself eloquently before his human counselors, but when standing before God, the creator, God who is sovereign, 
he was unable to offer one word in defense. He had had a change in heart. All his religious activity suddenly meant very little. And he was no longer proud. In fact, he despised himself. I think that means that he despised his religious arrogance. And he had gained a new perspective of God the Father and a deeper relationship with him. He had seen things too wonderful. In other words, things that are clearly that he good things that he didn't deserve. And he had seen God, whom he had only heard about prior to this. Isn't it interesting that the very thing he boasted about in chapter 19, where he said, after my skin is destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, has come true already while he's alive. He said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. He had a new and deeper encounter with God. So what was God's motive? I believe it was love for Job. His objective was to lead Job to a new and deeper relationship with him. It's the only objective, the only motive that makes sense to me that jibes with what I see as the character of a loving God. The key to reconciling that central conflict in the book of Job is this idea of transformation, of the change that occurred in Job, and I'm convinced more and more that this is the key to understanding essentially you know, many, many stories, both obvious and difficult ones, in the Bible. And right now I can imagine a lot of you at your in home saying, well, duh. That's a, it's, it's a revelation to me, and it's helped me address this book and others, especially as it's stated in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, which says, so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. You see, I'm seeing many instances throughout the scripture where God begins something with a natural, earthly illustration, and then through crisis or transformation results in a spiritual, eternal state. Look at the whole Bible, the story beginning with creation, physical creation, the planets, the earth, the oceans, the trees, the animals, and then man out of dust, all physical in a natural state. And the Bible ends in Revelation with the recreation of a new heaven and a new earth, all eternal and spiritual. Look at the apostles, a ragtag group of Hebrew fishermen mostly, a few tax collectors and uh, publicans thrown in there for good measure. But after the Holy Spirit fills them, they become bold, articulate, and they are later described as men who turned the world upside down. There was something new in them. They were not what they used to be. They had been transformed. 
This whole point of view is especially helpful when we look at the kingdom of Israel. Maybe you, like me, have times uh, cringed at the violence we see in the Old Testament. The commands that God gave to kings and prophets of Israel would not go over well today. Not a recommendation for ways to run a church. The things that are commanded just don't seem like things that a loving God would do. And you can't translate them directly into this church age. Why? Because the kingdom of Israel was a physical kingdom, an earthly kingdom. There are principles that can be applied from the Old Testament, like worshiping only one God. Check, I can do that. Um, don't misrepresent the truth. I can do that. We can certainly condone that today. Don't take another person's stuff. That's a good one. But let's not start dashing the babies of our enemies against the rocks. That's a command in the old, and taking over the, the promised land. They're to kill every man, woman, child, and, and livestock and slave in, in the cities you take over. That's ruthlessness. We can't translate that into the New Testament. We can translate the zeal and ruthlessness of ridding sin from our lives. We can't apply everything from a physical, earthly kingdom to a spiritual kingdom. And it's becoming clearer and clearer to me that God's frequent structure in the scriptures, in words, and in the stories we read is that things start with a physical, natural state to be a model that we can understand of a future that we can barely imagine. And this physical world is an educational tool in the hands of God. It is a communication medium between God and man, which he has always used. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what he has made, so that people are without excuse. What we see in nature tells us something about God, but not everything. And there is a beauty and majesty in this natural world, but not the same degree or type that heaven will have. A transformation has to take place. The Jews thought that Jesus was the political military messiah come to restore the might and the, of the kingdom of Israel. But Jesus himself said, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm not here to be like David and Solomon. My kingdom operates differently, and instead of wiping out the inhabitants of the land, I'm going to wipe out death, the ultimate enemy in a perfect, eternal, heavenly kingdom. So I have to ask, what words would you use to describe this concept? What image would you give to people everywhere that they could quickly understand and kind of explain that a change is required, that a transformation is needed to go from this initial physical state to something heavenly and eternal. Often in the church, we, as, as leaders and preachers, we, we're kind of conscious of religious language, and we try to avoid Christian cliches. 
but I cannot think of a better, more simple, direct way to say this than the way Jesus said it to Nicodemus when he said, you must be born again. Your first birth resulted in a physical nature and a natural state that is not adequate to get you into heaven. The only way to enter the kingdom of God is to be born of the same nature as the kingdom of God, a spiritual nature. That old person is just not going to get you there. Job learned that God loved him enough to bring him to a new experience with God, a personal encounter, something that was as clear to him as seeing. And so he gained a new perspective of his own unworthiness and the fact that he was now accepted through God's loving grace, which alone is able to create that new life. And even if it requires intense suffering, it is good. God's motive is love. God's objective is to lead you to a new life from him. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these amazing stories in both the Old and the New Testament that you give us to teach us. Help us to learn. Help us to submit to your ways and so recognize that you love us and that your grace alone is sufficient to bring us from this world to the next where there is no death, there is no weeping, there is no <laughs> virus, and you are in control as you are here. And we praise you and thank you through Jesus Christ. Amen.